Okay, so uh, despite my best efforts, I find myself here again in bed. Uh, so even though that isn't going to be the title of, of uh, this episode, I really, really need to get uh, the next couple of chapters of The Spook Who Sat By The Door uh, on the website, on the web, on the podcast, and uh, available for my friend to listen to before he completely loses interest in the book. And, uh, like I said, the rest of us can enjoy it as well. Um, so yeah, uh, another quick episode. Um, I'm going to head right into that right now. Uh, my, and instead of an interview this episode, uh, I was testing my ability to record a phone conversation, uh, for the podcast over the course of several days. Uh, and I finally got it right on the phone with, uh, my sister-in-law the other night. So, uh, in, instead of a, an interview, you get to uh, eavesdrop on our conversation about uh, what the kids will be doing for Halloween. So uh, here we go. It's in a book. Let's see what it is this fortnight. Hey, it's in a book. I am Lawrence Rouse, your host. I am once again in bed for this episode. I'm lying uh, next to my lovely bride, and uh, I am looking forward to publishing uh, the next couple of chapters of The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Now, I could just head right out to the web and, and go ahead and publish them. But uh, we promised you 10 episodes associated with those chapters. And uh, even though this is going to be a very, very short episode without an interview, uh, instead you get to eavesdrop on a phone call, um, I still wanted it to be a full episode, and, uh, and so it will be. Um, this episode will probably have the distinction of being the most quickly recorded, produced, and uh, posted episode ever. I'm, I'm attempting to get it done here uh, within this, this last hour before I, I lay my very sleepy head down to rest tonight. So uh, toward that end, we are going to head right into the phone call uh, upon which you get to eavesdrop, and, uh, and then we'll play out the next chapter of the spook who sat by the door um it's in a book here we go hey what's up bro what's up all right i think i actually figured it out this time okay congratulations <laughs> Okay. Okay. So when I talk, the the input meter moves, and I'm gonna shut up, and you're gonna talk, and hopefully the input meter moves too. All right, go for it. All right, good because I had a question. I was gonna ask you what holding is gonna be for Halloween this year. We really have no idea, or I don't anyway. Okay. Um, what's Dexter want to do? What 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 does he want to well, do? Well, that's that's what we're talking about right now. He wants to be something really scary. He told me he wanted to be a robber, mm -hmm. like wear like a hoodie and a gun. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that sounds a little sketch. Yeah, I'm like, no, you're not doing that. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, they could do like Freddy Krueger and Jason. Jason, it's kind of cliche, and they really don't know who the hell those people are. But I mean, it's scary. well. I think Holden Holden's probably gonna want to do something Harry Potter. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, Dexter could totally be uh uh Mal. What's his Malfoy? The, the blonde kid. Yeah, but Dexter doesn't care about Harry Potter. He mm. wants to be something scary. He could be Voldemort. He's pretty scary. He said no. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I'll, I'll talk to Holden tomorrow, and we can figure it out. Okay. I'm sure all Holden right. Holden isn't like completely wed to the idea of, of Harry Potter. He's pretty flexible. Scary is good for him too. All right. Well, sometimes they they do the best when we take them to the um store the halloween yes, store yeah and they and both kids want to go there like or i mean all three of them but in, in this case what i was speaking for my two they definitely uh want to go there so okay i think that's what we're gonna do too maybe we can all go together we'll see sounds perfect all right good all right. night good night thank you i got it fixed all right bye bye Chapter 5 Freeman saw his Dahomey queen at least once a week. She told him of the interview with the agent, but he did not want to switch whores and complicate things. Finding a mistress among black Washington society promised to be tedious, unrewarding, and a potential threat to his carefully worked out cover. His girl, Joy, came to Washington almost monthly and twice she met him in New York Midtown hotels, since he would not reveal his soul whole to, even to her. Late one spring evening, they were lying in his bed in Washington. They had eaten a seafood dinner in a restaurant not far from his apartment, just north of the junction of the Anacostia and Potomac Rivers. They had been seated by the kitchen as usual. Later, they had listened to Sonny Stitt, in a small jazz club just off U Street, in the heart of the big Washington ghetto. They made love when they returned, but had not slept, and lay silently sipping scotch and smoking, listening to the music of a late-night jazz station from the transistor radio, which stood on the bed table. Joy arose to one elbow and gazed into Freeman's face. Dan... I think it's time to have a talk about the two of us. This kind of thing can't go on forever. It's time I started thinking about a home, family, security. Okay, he said. Let's get married. Dan, you know I'd love to marry you, have your children, but this part of you, your bitterness, your preoccupation with the race thing, it frightens me, shuts me out. I feel threatened. Freeman sat up in bed and looked at Joy in some surprise. But why should you feel threatened? Hell, the way I feel doesn't even threaten Whitey. Dan, how much longer are you willing to stick with this job? You haven't had a promotion in four years, and you're the only Negro officer they have. Once I prove myself, they'll recruit more Negroes. I'm certain of it. We can't all join the demonstrations. Some of us have to try quietly to make integration work. 
Are you going to prove yourself by taking a bunch of bored housewives on guided tours? They were on shaky ground, and Freeman had to be careful. Joy knew him too well, and one false move, a statement which didn't ring true, and he might expose himself. He arose, walked to the dresser to light a cigarette, regarding her in the mirror as he did so. I'm hoping I can move into something else soon, something more substantial. He returned to the bed, sat on its edge, and lit a cigarette for her. If I left now, before they began hiring other Negroes, I'd always think I'd given up. It's not easy continuing with this jive job, but it's little enough sacrifice for the cause of integration. Baby, I'm sorry, but I can't sacrifice my life for a cause. I admire the way you feel, but I fought too hard to get out of the slums, and you continue to identify with the slum people you left behind. I never left them behind. She placed her hand on his knee and smiled gently. Honey, whether you admit it or not, the day you left Chicago for college, you left the block and the people on it. Besides, what's wrong with wanting to live in a decent neighborhood? To want the best for our kids. Who do you think pays for those nice things if not the people we ought to be helping because nobody ever gave them a chance to help themselves? Joy, have you forgotten you came off those same streets? Except for your college degree, those people are just like you. Not me, baby. I left that behind me. All those hot, stinky rooms, those streets full of ghosts, junkies, whores, pimps, con men, the crooked cops, the phony, fornicating preachers, and the smells, garbage, stale sweat, stale beer, reefers, wine, and funk. That bad hand-me-down meat from the white supermarket? The price hiked up in two minutes this side of turning a buzzard's stomach? I've had that shit, and going back won't change things. Somebody has to try and change things. You can't change Whitey. He needs things just the way they are, like a junkie needs shit. Whitey's hooked with messing with niggers, and you want him to go told turkey. It's not gonna happen. We can be happy, Dan. We can be anything we want. Whitey won't let you be what you want to be. They put you in a pigeonhole marked nigger. How can I be happy that way? There's no way I can spin a middle-class cocoon thick enough for them not to penetrate any time they choose. Even if I could, what about the rest? We have our own lives to live. I can't live in this country like an animal. I'm a man. He was restlessly pacing the room. She leaned toward him, the sheet falling away from her breasts, and he had a moment of panic looking at her, knowing that he might lose her. You don't have to live like an animal. If you really must spite whites, do it by succeeding. You can do more for your people by offering them an example to follow than by burying yourself in that building across the river. You mean hire myself out for a higher price to sit by a more impressive door? It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to think any corporation with whites is a sellout. There are dozens of responsible positions available. She wants me to tell her it will be all right if I make enough money. A man ought to be able to protect his woman, make her feel secure. But how long will it take for her to hate me as a man once I've traded in my balls? A showpiece spade is a showpiece spade 
no matter how many times he gets his picture in the papers or how much bread he makes. Joy, I don't have to stay in Washington. I can return to Chicago. It was a bit too soon for what he planned, but he had to try and keep her. Keep them both. There's an opening with the private foundation I started out with, in street gang work. You're going back into social work? All the good positions for Negroes are filled now. I thought you might finish law school, maybe go into politics. She wants that title, he thought. Mrs. Lawyer Freeman, then Mrs. Congressional Freeman. I can go to law school. The kids only hang out at night. Stop kidding yourself, Dan. You don't want to go to law school. You never did like it. And you hate Negro lawyers. You hate all the Negro middle class because you think they don't do enough to help other Negroes. You forget something, honey. I'm middle class too, but you're still on the block in spirit. You've made your choice, and I have a right to make mine. He looked at her, but she dropped her head and stared morosely at the glowing tip of her cigarette, its smoke lightly veiling her face. Yes, he said softly. You have. I'm not coming to Washington anymore. I'm going to get married. He picked up his drink and took a sip. The ice had melted, and it was weak, watery, and warm. The doctor or the lawyer? The doctor, she answered. He drew a deep breath, let it out slowly. Seems like a nice cat. He thought of her never being his again and thrust the thought from his mind. He listened to the radio, Miles Davis playing a ballad. It didn't help. It was from a record Joy had given him as a present. How many other things had she given to him in their years together? How much of her was a part of him? Suddenly, he was afraid she would cry. I'm sorry, Dan, but I'm not getting any younger and... It's all right, baby, he said, taking her cigarette and snuffing it out in an ashtray. I guess it had to happen one day. Look, this is our last night together. Let's say goodbye, right? He reached for her. She sent him an invitation to the wedding, and he sent them a wedding present, but he did not go to Chicago for the ceremony, because he thought you could carry being civilized too far. Freeman had met Joy years before in East Lansing, Michigan, when they were both students at Michigan State University. They were both slumbred, bright, quick, and tough, and considered a college degree the answer to undefined ambitions. They had much in common. They were both second-generation immigrants of refugee families from the Deep South. Their grandparents had migrated as displaced persons to the greater promises of the urban North. Joy's grandfather from Alabama to the Ford plant during the First War. Freeman's to the Chicago stockyards about the same time. Both Joy and Freeman had been born during the bleak Depression years and had known the prying, arrogant social workers, the easily identifiable relief clothing, the relief beans, potatoes, rice, and raisins wrapped in their forbidding brown paper bags. But poverty had done different things to them. Joy had become determined she would never be poor again. Freeman, that one day to be black and poor would no longer be synonymous. 
She regarded his militant idealism and total identification to his race first with amusement, then irritation, and finally, growing concern. Joy had no intention of becoming her black brother's keeper. Slowly, she convinced Freeman he could best use his talents to help Negroes as a lawyer dedicated to the cause of civil rights. He could join the legal staff of one of the established civil rights bureaucracies, one day argue precedent-making cases before the Supreme Court. She convinced him, and he began preparing himself for law school while working toward an undergraduate degree in sociology. Life was being very kind to Joy. She had never felt she would marry the man she loved, but she knew she would have to be very careful because Freeman could be a very stubborn man and the mere idea of his becoming a member of the black bourgeoisie was enough to enrage him. Joy intended not only that he become a member, but one of the leaders. She felt that she could manage this essentially unmanageable man because he loved her. The greatest potential danger was that she loved him as well, but she thought that she could control that emotion. She would have to because there was far too much at stake. Joy made an unfortunate strategic error. She insisted that Freeman attend the national convention of the civil rights organization they thought he would join. Because she had to work that summer to replenish her wardrobe for the fall, Freeman went to the convention alone. He returned bitter and disillusioned. Baby, there ain't no way I can work for those motherfuckers. They don't give a damn about any niggers except themselves, and they don't really think of themselves as niggers. You ought to hear the way they talk about people like us. Like white folks don't really have much to do with the scene. It's that lower class niggers are too stupid, lazy, dirty, and immoral. If they weren't around, all them dirty, conk-headed niggers with their African and down-home ways, why, everything would be swinging for the swinging black bourgeois bureaucrats, their high yellow wives, their spoiled brat kids, and their white liberal mistresses. Integration shit. Their definition of integration is to have their kids the only niggers in a white private school, their wives with a well-paying job in an otherwise all-white firm, and ballin' white chicks looking for some African kicks. And look at what they're trying to do. When did you ever see them raising hell with the lily-white union so that people like your father can get a job they're qualified for? Or try to get those so-called building inspectors to do their jobs so people in the slums can live a little better. Or get involved with any kind of nigger that wasn't just like themselves. Joy was concerned, but not too much so. She figured that she could gradually smooth things over, but she underestimated Freeman's natural distrust and contempt for the Negro middle class. He remained adamant. Their fights about their future increased in frequency and intensity. Freeman took frequent trips with the track team, and it was not until he returned unexpectedly early from the annual Pacific Coast Conference Big Ten Dual Meet, which had been held in Palo Alto, that he found that Joy had been spending each weekend he had been on the road with the track team in Detroit. He drove to Detroit that evening, but she was not in when he called, and he left a message with her mother. He called a former roommate who was doing graduate work in Wayne State and dropped his bags at his apartment. 
Freeman went to a little bar near his friend's home. He and Joy went there often because the bartender had been a potential All-American at Michigan until injured in the Army game, and the owner of the bar had played football at Illinois. The bar had a small, tasteful combo, piano, bass, drums, an electric guitar, and sometimes a horn. He sat at the bar talking to the bartender, sipping a Ballantine's ale and listening to the music. He did not see Joy when she came in until he looked up and caught her reflection in the mirror behind the bar. She was sitting in a booth almost directly behind where he sat, and she had not noticed him there. She was with a tall, light-skinned Negro named Frank, who had graduated from Michigan two years before. He was the Negro quota at a local medical school, and his father was a prominent society doctor who made most of his money tax-free, selling dope to jazz musicians and performing abortions for Negro debutantes in Detroit. Freeman watched them in the mirror, and like lovers, they touched one another in that way lovers think is casual. The bartender watched him closely, and Freeman smiled that he intended to cool it. He was about to leave, hoping that Joy would not see him, when he looked up and their eyes met in the mirror. He nodded, smiled, and lifted his drink in salute toward her reflection. He stood and walked to her table and talked small talk with her and her date. Freeman had met him often in Ann Arbor and East Lansing, and occasionally at parties in Detroit, but somehow the pretty boy could never remember Freeman's name. Sitting there with Joy must have been good for his memory, because that night he knew exactly who Freeman was. They looked at one another in that quiet, deadly way men have when they don't like one another, while Joy chattered nervously. Freeman refused her invitation to sit down, and then excused himself. He refused to drink at the bar and left, saying goodbye to his bartender friend. To Frank's credit, he really wanted to marry Joy, but his mother would not permit it because Joy was not society. She had not even come out. Several days of his mother's illness, a round trip to Europe for the summer vacation, and an American Express credit card convinced Frank that the thing between him and Joy could not work. He was very successful with the story of his tragic love in Europe, and girls from Smith, Vassar, and Sarah Lawrence sympathized with him right up until the time they climbed into bed with him. Somehow, the story did not impress the girls from Bennington, but the others were intrigued. They didn't know Negroes had problems of that kind. They would enclose his creamy body in their arms, shut their eyes, and think of him as of the deepest black. Had he known this, he would not have been flattered. The experience taught Joy a lesson. She would never leave her background behind her in Detroit. Her beauty, grace, manners, and education meant nothing to Detroit black society. She went to Los Angeles and became a society virgin from the Middle West. Freeman did not see her until years later when she returned to Chicago.
Okay, folks, uh, so comes to a close episode three of uh, season two of It's in a Book. Uh, I am really excited to be bringing you uh, the, the spook who, who sat by the door, um, bringing it to my friend, and, and uh, you know, we all get to enjoy it. Uh, I, I won't say that again, I promise. Um, so, um, yeah, chapters uh, five and six are, are also available. Uh, just head out to the website, bfbcir.com. Uh, they're in the same repository where the other chapters are, and I'm going to work on getting the the next two chapters, six and seven, up ASAP and uh, preparing a, a podcast episode to go with them, hopefully a full episode. But, um, you know, the, the conversation that, that uh, my, my sister-in-law and I had was peripherally related to books. I mean, uh, Harry Potter was in there, um, Halloween. I'm sure there are tons of books about Halloween. Uh, and, and I just enjoy talking to her anyway because she, she's really funny. Um, uh, that that conversation uh, did, didn't really highlight her humor, but uh, trust me, she, she's a riot. Um, so yeah, um, before I end this episode, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the stuff that I'm reading right now um, for multiple reasons, one of which is that I absolutely hated the book that we chose for book club uh, uh, this time around. We haven't met for book club yet, so... Um, I, I highly doubt anyone in the book club uh, is, is going to hear this podcast before we meet uh, and I browbeat them to listen to it. But uh, I had a hand in, in picking the book from a, a stack of other books, but I'm, I'm so disappointed in it. Um, it's it's called The Leftovers. It's by Tom Perota. Perota I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how to, how to pronounce his name. Uh, and, and I really should be considering that I'm, I'm giving his book such a negative review, but it, it just completely fell flat. It, I, I would consider it a failed novel. And, and as I understand it, um, he has a, a pretty big body of work and, and some of them are really good. He's, he's kind of a, a humorist though. Um, and, and I just, I don't think uh, his style particularly uh, meshed well with the, with his chosen subject matter. Um, check it out. Maybe you'll love it. As I understand it, it's also a television show. show. My sister-in-law loves the TV show. And, and the book kind of reads like a TV show. Um, and in my uh, opinion, to my way of thinking, that, that usually doesn't work out for, uh, for good literature. Um, so yeah, the other stuff that I'm reading, though, I'm really, really excited about it. So um, I found uh, a book at uh, Reader's Corner, um, which is one of the really cool uh, bookstores, used bookstores here in Raleigh. Uh, and uh, there was a, a book of essays called I Was Told There'd Be Cake. There by Sloan Crossley. Uh, it was, I think, her first collection of, of essays. She she went ahead and, and wrote another collection of essays and, and then a novel. Her her career seems to be thriving uh, as as far as New York writers go. So uh, good on her. I'm really enjoying those essays. Um, I found in the process of picking up the leftovers this amazing book. Uh, it's called Station Eleven. It's by Emily St. John Mandel. It's a post-apocalyptic. Uh, poem almost i mean it's it's a really beautiful look at, at, at what the the face of the earth might look like with a, a lot fewer of us due to uh you know circumstances she describes in the book um we covered a, a post-apocalyptic novel called um what was it one second after by william fortune um of, of several years back or at least a few years back i really enjoyed that book as well but it was it was really really dark and and even though you know most post apocalyptic <laughs> i'm, I'm uh, trying to coin a new word there um 
novels, books are, are also dark, this one is, is, is very, very hopeful. And, and one of the members of uh, a book club agreed with me with regard to that. Um, and, and it's certainly beautiful. Uh, so just one more book to plug here. Um, Black No More by George S. Schuyler. Um, I just happened upon it at the library. I think it was actually the same day uh, I happened upon Station 11. And um, the the preface to the book, the introduction rather, is by Danzy Senna, who is the wife of, uh, she, she's a novelist herself, but she's also the wife of, of one of my very favorite authors, authors, um, Percival Everett. Um, and, and she wrote a, a really good book herself. I'm, I'm not sure if she's published again, but uh, I, I read the book that she wrote back when it first came out. I, I paid full price for it in hardback, uh, and, and it was worth it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to shut up now, um, keep this episode short, and get to work on uh, on the next two chapters and, and the next episode. Um, hey, thanks for listening. Um, all right, we'll see you back here very, very soon. It's in a book. Out. What's up? Bye.